electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, President Trump's whirlwind weekend, a series of executive orders for pandemic relief. CNBC's Eamon Javers. The potential for this to backfire is if you promise $400 a week in additional unemployment and you can't deliver it, then people say, hey, wait a second, the president's leaving us in the lurch here. School districts debate safe reopenings. The 2020 academic year may be the start of a new American education. Johns Hopkins, Annette Anderson. We are starting to see what ed reformers have long called for, change, change in education, a change in how our students are going to be educated for a 21st century economy. Those stories, plus TikTok's lawsuit against the Trump administration, the new, new Kodak, and Warren Buffett's biggest Berkshire buyback ever. Here's our morning rave. It's Monday, August 10th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Melissa Lee and Wilfred Frost. Joe and Andrew are both out today, but Melissa and Wilf, thank you guys for coming in early on a Monday morning. I know you guys are afternoon slash evening type people, but I'm really <laughs> glad to have you here. Thank you, guys. Pleasure. Our pleasure. Nothing like <laughs> yanking you out of the weekend early, right? <laughs> for this, it's right and early on a morning. Always worth it. As of this weekend, the United States has surpassed 5 million cases of COVID-19, roughly one quarter of all infections reported across the world. It took just the last six weeks for U.S. COVID cases to double. The growth of new cases in the U.S. appears to have leveled off at an average of 54,000 per day over the last week. More than 162,000 Americans have died in the pandemic. Markets and lawmakers aren't sure what to make yet of President Trump's controversial step on Saturday of issuing four executive orders in an attempt to provide economic relief to Americans. This came after stimulus negotiations in Congress ground to a halt, leaving many whose livelihoods have been upended by the coronavirus in limbo. Here's Becky Quick. Eamon Javers is here. He joins us with more on this. And Eamon, there are so many questions on this. I was actually on the phone with the producers yesterday begging to have you on this morning to walk us through this, because even after going through hours of kind of trying to figure out what was happening, I have to say I'm still confused. Yeah, look, it is confusing. And the reason, Becky, it's confusing is because the president really only has limited authority here. Without legislation from Congress, there's not that much he can do. And he's right up to the edge here uh, in, do, in taking all these actions. In fact, you've heard Democrats complain over the weekend that what the president signed at his Bedminster Golf Club on Saturday was actually over the line and illegal and unconstitutional. Let's walk through what he did first, and then we'll talk about what the reaction is. What he did was a series of executive orders, including this payroll tax pause, uh, in which he's going to defer collection of the payroll taxes. That starts September 1st. It runs through the end of the year. Uh, but people would have to pay the payroll taxes at the end of the deferral period if the law is not changed. And it doesn't look like the law is going to be changed, at least under this 
congressional uh, layout right now. So the president is simply hoping here that uh, there'll be a new Congress, he'll be reelected, and he'll be able to pass a law making that deferral permanent. But for employers and employees trying to figure that all out, uh, which way do you bet on that is a real open question. Uh, the other one is rental help. The president not able to extend the eviction moratorium, but he is directing his federal agencies to find ways to go out and help renters. So we'll see what the federal government can come up, come up with there. And then on the unemployment insurance, it's $400 in bonus unemployment. Remember, that would replace the $600 a week that people have been getting under the CARES Act. This is uh, money coming from the Homeland Security's uh, Disaster Relief Fund. And the federal government is going to pay 75% of this under the president's plan. The states will be responsible for 25% of it, and you've already heard some complaints from the states that they simply don't have the money to be able to do that. And so you heard from Democrats over the weekend that this is entirely unworkable. Here's Chuck Schumer. Unfortunately, the president's executive orders described in one word could be paltry in three words, unworkable, weak, and far too narrow. The event at the country club is just what Trump does, a big show, but it doesn't do anything. And as the American people look at these executive orders, they'll see they don't come close to doing the job. Meanwhile, you had Treasury Secretary Mnuchin on television over the weekend as well. He explained exactly what the president hopes happens here with his payroll tax deferral. Here's what he said. We've been told by the states they can get this up and running immediately. And I would say if the Democrats want to challenge us in court and hold up unemployment benefits to those hardworking Americans that are out of a job because of COVID, they're going to have a lot of explaining to do. So, Becky, essentially a dare there from the Treasury Secretary saying, look, go ahead, sue us. If you want to be the political party that's suing to stop unemployment checks going to unemployed people ahead of an election, go ahead and do that. And that's sort of where we are. It's a real standoff here in Washington, not clear when negotiations can resume. We're told that there wasn't really any meaningful contact between uh, Democratic leaders and the White House over the weekend. And we'll see what Monday brings. Hey, Eamon, let's start. There's going to be a bunch of questions that I know all three of us want to ask coming out of this, but let's start just with the very basics. If the Democrats challenge any portion of this, does that mean they challenge all of it? Because I could see them saying, okay, we want to challenge the idea of a payroll tax holiday or a relief at this point, but we don't want to stop the checks from going out. Right. I mean, you could, you, there are three different executive memoranda here and an executive order. So you could do uh, a lawsuit that targets specific federal action that's contemplated by the president here. Uh, so you don't have to challenge the whole thing if you're the Democrats. You can go after uh, bits and pieces. The question is, politically, what's the strategy? You saw Nancy Pelosi over the weekend arguing that this was both unconstitutional, unconstitutional and also too little. Um, if it's unconstitutional, then the Democrats really are putting themselves in a position where they, they sort of morally or righteously would need to sue to block it. But also, uh, if it does provide any little bit of help, they don't want to be in a position of being the ones to take that away. We keep saying it's $400 in unemployment. It's really $300 that's federal, coming from the federal government. And then they're saying the states could go ahead right. and pick up an extra $100. But we should probably recharacterize it as $300 coming from the federal government. Yeah, it's $300 from the federal government, and the states would pay 100 And you already heard a lot of governors around the country saying, whoa, wait a second, our budgets have been so badly hit that we can't even pay for the, the services that we're providing right now, let alone an additional unemployment benefit. That's simply not possible. We're not going to be able to do it. Uh, you know, Mnuchin and others argue that the states will be able to find a way to do that. Um, and, you know, we'll see what governors say uh, this morning as they get into their offices and try to figure this thing out.
Eamon, I just wanted to ask, I mean, going back to that soundbite we heard from the Treasury Secretary, is this not just a brilliant political move, regardless of exactly how it all ends up, uh, to the point on unemployment benefit, again, whether it's 300, 400 or the original 600, uh, as recently as two, three, four weeks ago, the Republicans, and certainly some of the Republicans, were suggesting they didn't want any uh, extension of that uh, boost to unemployment benefit. Right. And that was how the narrative was, was coming across. And, and with one little signature, the president's kind of turned that on its head and, and, and might well now, whether a full deal gets done or not, go into the election being able to claim that he was the one that always wanted to, to give those unemployment benefits out. Right. Look, politically, that's the, that's the genius of the move over the weekend, right? The president takes action, shows himself as a leader who is taking action, trying to help, and puts the Democrats on the defensive. And that's why you saw that dare from Mnuchin saying, go ahead, sue us, if you want to be the ones to block this. So politically, um, this, is, this is good politics over the weekend from the president. Uh, the question is whether it's going to result in actual checks going to actual Americans. The potential for this to backfire is if you promise $400 a week in additional unemployment and you can't deliver it, if the mechanics don't work out, uh, then people say, hey, wait a second, the president's leaving us in the lurch here. He's the guy who signed... Uh, the executive order and I'm not getting any money. Uh, so they have to figure out a way to make the mechanics of this work uh, and that's going to be very tricky to do. And so there's a there's risk here as well for the president. Larry Kudlow over the weekend, Eamon, seemed to indicate that the president could in fact waive the state's contribution of the $100 and it could be covered by the federal government. Um, that, I mean, to Wolf's point, that also seems like almost a stroke of political genius because he could say this and then, and then it's Trump to the rescue once again by saying, oh, you know what? Right. You know, X state, California, whatever state it may be, we'll cover it. Don't worry about it. We're coming to the rescue. Right. Well, and then the question is, would they review that on a case by case basis, state by state? Mm -hmm. And on what basis would they review that? I mean, would this be a red states versus blue states kind of a thing? Uh, or who's going to make that decision? There's a lot that we just haven't been able to sort through yet here in terms of how this is going to work and who has the authority to do that and, and on what basis they'll do it. Hey, Eamon, I've, I've heard a lot of political commentary of people saying, look, this means that the two sides are going to be kind of forced to come together and come up with a deal. But I, I, I kind of doubt that uh, on some level. I mean, it, yeah. it seems to me like this provides cover for the president to get what he has, has wanted to say, here's what I've wanted all along. It, it means that Mitch McConnell is not going to have to rein in some of the Republican senators in his camp who, who didn't want to go along with anything. So there's nothing that's going to bring them to the table. And it puts the Democrats in a much tougher position where they're going to have to cave on just about everything or, or just go ahead and, and, and go the opposite direction and, and take them to court over this. I, I don't see this kind of pushing things closer to a deal. Yeah, Becky, and that's where I'm kind of scratching my head as we stand here this morning trying to figure out the dynamic of this, because in the modern era, you know, in the past 10 years or so, Congress just doesn't do anything unless there's a forcing deadline, right? If there's some sort of fiscal cliff that we're about to go over, then Congress can kind of bring itself to cut a deal. But uh, absent that, uh, there's just no incentive for people to cut a deal because everybody can point fingers and we just don't see any forcing mechanisms out there. There's no big major deadline. They've already blown through the $600 a week deadline that a lot of us thought would be, you know, a potential forcing mechanism because no, neither party would want to take those benefits away from Americans who are struggling in the middle of a pandemic. Well, that happened. That's already gone. Uh, and they, bl they blew right through that deadline. There's nothing else really on the horizon that says you've got to get this done by Friday or you've got to get it done by Tuesday of next week. Those are the moments where Congress is really forced to buckle down and cut an unpopular deal. Uh, in this case, you know, you could see a scenario where both sides simply point their fingers at each other and take it to the voters in November.
Amen again. Thank you uh, for getting up early with us this morning because uh, a lot of questions sure, and I feel bet. like we got a lot of answers. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Well, some answers anyway. Thanks. We're watching shares of Kodak this morning down by 45% in pre-market trading. This on news that a potential deal for a government loan to help make ingredients for generic drugs is being put on hold. In a tweet late Friday, the International Development Finance Corporation, a U.S. government agency, says the recent allegations of insider trading raise serious concerns and the deal will not proceed until they are cleared. The SEC is reportedly in the early stages of a probe and Kodak said Friday it is conducting an internal review. And Becky, you guys have been all over this. You had the, the CEO, Jim Continenza, on Squawk shortly after the loan was awarded. Uh, and, and Joe, I remember pointedly asked him about the unusual uh, stock activity in the day just before uh, this deal was announced. On Monday, 1.648 million shares. And then Tuesday, the news came out. How do you account for that, James? Any idea whether, whether someone had, had wind of this? I mean, we didn't see the move in the stock until Tuesday, but that, that is so far and away, that's a multiple of the average daily volume over the, over the last, you know, over a long period of time. Any idea whether this got out? I don't know. I mean, obviously, this has been a pretty tight-kept secret, obviously. We made it to the last day, basically, so um, I couldn't tell you what influenced that or didn't. Later, we find out that he was also awarded a huge stock option grant the day before as well. So uh, certainly a lot of eyebrows uh, being raised here. Yeah, we, we watched it run up and we're kind of watching it unwind right now as this comes through. Uh, there were people who were waiting for the SEC to do an investigation. You kind of knew it was going to be coming. And, and, and now the question is, what happens to the contract itself as a result? The, the only thing that almost makes you think that that nothing wrong could have gone on is, is it would be so unbelievably obvious if it did. Uh, and that if you were involved in, in trying to uh, front run at this news, you surely would realize you'll definitely be exposed because it was such a, a unique, uh, groundbreaking piece of news that completely changed the fortune of the share price. But, but we'll have to wait and see for a full, full investigation. So the, the yeah. old, uh, they can't have been that stupid defense, right? Yeah, well, surely. But, but it, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen stupid things before, though, guys. That's certainly, true, we'll we see the stock have. reverses that Kodak premium. The shares are trading at two and change prior to this whole thing uh, coming public. New developments uh, from TikTok over the weekend. The company reportedly planning to sue the Trump administration as soon as tomorrow, according to NPR. President Trump signed an executive order last week that would ban transactions with TikTok's parent company ByteDance. Meanwhile, Twitter has reportedly held preliminary talks about a potential uh, deal with TikTok over its U.S. operations. Uh, Twitter shares are up about 4.7% uh, this morning. Uh, Microsoft, of course, has already confirmed it's in talks to buy the popular video sharing app, and uh, its share price uh, benefited uh, this time last week, really, uh, when it was looking like they were the most likely suitors. And guys, I mean, lawsuit threats or, or, or not, uh, this one, in the short term at least, as we approach the election, is, is not likely to see either side uh, turn around and, and suggest that this isn't the way forward. It's, it's such a hot button uh, topic and uh, likewise unlikely that the legal system will be able to block any, uh, any sale or, or ban of the, of the app in the short term. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we talk about Twitter potentially buying the company. Twitter's got a market cap of just under $30 billion. And that, that 
we've heard variations on how valuable TikTok's U.S. operations really are. A lot of questions when you've got people who are kind of defecting to other services in the meantime with this chaos, questions about what it would mean. Um, but it, it might be a tough one for Twitter to pull off uh, just based on its market cap. And then we're learning that Microsoft is open to inviting other parties to invest alongside it, which is a head scratcher since Microsoft right. does have the money and the wherewithal to make such an acquisition on its own. So why would mm -hmm. it also invite minority investors? What's the strategy behind that? Um, but, but these are all big questions. Is this, I mean, it, this is a fascinating deal with, a, with huge implications in terms of what else the administration can do in terms of forced divestitures mm. with the ultimate end game of potentially collecting a percentage of, of every transaction it forces. <laughs> I mean, the, the other question as well, yeah. it, we saw a big two-day pop for Facebook last week of about 6% over two sessions off the back of announcing its launch of, of Reels after an already good uh, couple of weeks for Facebook uh, as well. And one wonders if this continues to drag for the next couple of weeks or months is, is how much... Uh, sort of share of the pie, as it were, that, that Facebook can start to take from TikTok and uh, kind of decrease the value of, of what Microsoft or Twitter or whoever else would be, would be trying to buy. Yeah, and that, that, that to me was the real head scratcher, trying to figure out what the valuation, what this would be worth, because we spoke with Steve Ballmer last week, and as the biggest shareholder in Microsoft, he said he'd love to see this deal get done at the right price. I don't know what the right price would be when you're trying to take all of these things into account. What happens, whether you're able to pull off the technological feat of actually getting everything here, whether the administration changes its mind from day to day. As you continue to see, again, reels and other, uh, um, other sort of competition coming in and stealing um, the, the number of users that are on it at any given point. And as Melissa brought up, this transaction fee that's out there, how do you possibly figure out a fair valuation and what the right price would be because it's difficult enough to do when it's a staid company and you have none of these other factors involved. My final point was going to be that you wonder what the retaliation is going to be. The big question out there has got to be uh, what this means for Apple. Apple of the big U.S. tech companies is the one with by far the most significant revenue exposure in China and not to mention of course a big supply chain and how it relies on that but the retaliation now of course uh, from the U.S. towards these Chinese tech companies is real. One could argue warranted and, and even with without the national security questions that uh, over the last couple of uh, decades, the only reason you've got Tencent and Alibaba is because Facebook and Google and Amazon were banned in, in China initially. And in that sense, it's kind of perhaps a, a fair uh, pushback eventually, national security otherwise. But where will China push back if they really feel like they're forced to? Apple seems like the obvious target. So it'll uh, be interesting to discuss that. Next on Squawk Pod, ensuring a safe and sustainable school year. We need to expand federal E-rate for families at home so that they can get internet access in their homes and not just in their schools and libraries. Johns Hopkins School of Education Assistant Professor Annette Anderson is right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod.
Good morning and welcome back to Scorebox here on CNBC. I'm Wilfred Frost along with Becky Quick and Melissa Lee. Joe and Andrew have the day off today. As summer nears an end, school districts and parents across the nation are trying to figure out whether it's safe to send their kids back into the physical classroom. A new report finds that in the last two weeks of July, more than 97,000 children in the United States tested positive for COVID-19. And a majority of the infections came from states across the South and the West. Joining us right now is Annette Anderson. She is assistant professor at Johns Hopkins School of Education. She's also the deputy director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Safe and Healthy Schools and one of three co-founders of the eSchool Plus initiative. And Annette, um, what, what can you tell us about where things stand? I realize that this is not a nation, nationwide answer potentially for everybody out there, but how, how safe is it for kids to be going back to school? What, what, what should parents be considering? Well, I think that we've seen such a varied response across the country to how to reopen schools that there's just not consistency right now. It's really a great disruption if you will consider that some districts are going back fully remote. You have some districts that have tried to open up in a face-to-face -face version and others still are talking about a hybrid version. Districts are pushing back their dates to reopen their schools in the fall. Um, and so we're seeing all over the map just different approaches to how schools are planning to reopen. Well, it's probably not a surprise, given that every elected official and every government agency seems to be kicking the can down the road, and it lands squarely on the head of each individual school district and the superintendent there to try and figure this out from a mess of conflicting advice that they've been given. I agree. It has just been all over the place. And so as a result, what you're seeing is that parents are driving a lot of the innovation in terms of responding to these concerns. We've had so many different reports from just the federal, the state, and the local level that parents are starting to think about things like unschooling and microschooling. And we've heard a lot lately about pandemic pods as a way for parents to think about how to provide the education that they want for their children. So there's a lot of different parental insight into what they think schools should be doing right now. And schools also should be innovating. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of conversation about how parents are driving all of the decision making and they're voting with their feet. You know, Annette, I, I, I go through this as somebody who is looking to send my kids back to school and trying to figure out what's happening. I, I don't envy any of these superintendents who are trying to make these decisions. Um, you have the facts on the ground changing pretty rapidly. You have advice and directives from both the state and local level changing constantly. How is a school supposed to be prepared? It's hard enough to get prepared just coming back from the summer anyway. How do you handle it on top of this? What could we be doing, I guess, both from a state, a local, and, and also from a national level to be assisting the schools a little more to make sure that they have what they need? Thank you. I think that, first of all, we've got to get these community transmission rates under control. We saw just released report that said that 97,000 children across the country have been afflicted with COVID in just the last two weeks of July. And that's a great concern for people who are in education as they think about putting children back in physical buildings. We also know that there is some inequity as you talk about how we're going to provide internet access for all. And we think that we need to expand a federal e-rate for families at home so that they can get internet uh, access in their homes and not just in their schools and libraries where e-rate has been a potential strong benefit. But we also know that schools are both buildings and experiences. And so we want our children to be able to use the services of our school buildings while not necessarily having to go back into unsafe situations like we saw in Georgia last week. 
Are there going to be any long-term benefits from going through the experience of, of getting kids much more set up to be able to do some part of the schooling at home with technology? Could there be a, a great improvement by 2022, say, in the quality of education because of that? I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful that there will be. You're seeing, as I said earlier, that this is the great disruption. And I don't believe that we'll ever really go back to school as normal as we conceive of schooling. So I think that what you're starting to see is some innovation. There are some schools and some districts that have really thought creatively about how to approach schools. Um, there are some that are thinking about building outside classrooms, thinking about using the environment as a source of education for students. And so I think as, as schools and districts continue to evolve and they're thinking about how we can be creative, Created, we are starting to see what ed reformers have long called for, change, change in education and change in how our students are going to be educated for a 21st century economy. But make no mistake about it, we have to invest in our children. Even as we come out of this pandemic, we need to continue to make our greatest investment in our children because they are our economic future. Annette, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway buying back a record amount of the company's stock, diving into that and more from the latest earnings report. I can't wait for those uh, Q213Fs, that's a phrase you only hear on, on CNBC, but, uh, but, but uh, I, I mean <laughs> it's a it though. Only hear from you. People today can spend half their lives over 50, so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Welcome back, everybody. Some news out from Berkshire Hathaway over the weekend. The company revealing that it repurchased $5.1 billion of its own stock in May and June. That's the most ever in a single period for Chairman Warren Buffett. Despite the buybacks, though, Berkshire's cash hoard grew to more than $140 billion at the end of the quarter. Second quarter profit jumped by 87 percent as the paper value of its investments increased. Apple stock, of course, has nearly doubled since the March low, and that's a big holding for Berkshire Hathaway. But Berkshire took a roughly $9 billion write-down on precision cast parts. That's its aircraft manufacturing business because of the impact of the pandemic and what's that done, what that's done to the airline industry. Also, Berkshire spent $2.1 billion to buy more than $85 million of shares of Bank of America. That was already its second largest stock stake after Apple. Berkshire owns now 11.9% of the bank's outstanding shares. That's a stake worth around $27 billion. And we should point out uh, those purchases, the $2.1 billion, came in late July and early August, so after that quarter ended. So the $140 billion, mm -hmm. they had spent some money after that. That was. Uh, we also saw the purchase for Dominion Energy 
natural gas pipeline and storage for about $4 billion, and that came after the end of the quarter as well. So the cash hoard's a little bit down from where it is. It was. It looks like they are spending money, but obviously a huge question is going to be what happens uh, with other bank shares. We think we find out around the 15th what his holdings are. We'll find out what he's been doing with Wells Fargo and any of the other bank stocks that mm -hmm. they owned, um, and just kind of get a feel for if he likes bank stocks in general or if there are just some that he likes. T totally agree. I can't wait for those uh, Q213Fs. That's a phrase you only hear on, on CNBC. But, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, I, I mean it, though. It's a phrase we only hear from you. Because, uh, <laughs> because in Q1's 13Fs, uh, of course, we learned that he was a seller of banks. He trimmed JP Morgan and Synchrony mm -hmm. Financial, uh, and he sold out almost entirely from, from Goldman Sachs. And so there is a big question, given that he's slightly increased his Bank of America stake, uh, but still significant in, in terms of $2 billion, but to 11.9%, whether this is now a, a massive change of heart and he's bullish U.S. banks in general, and maybe by implication the U.S. economy, or whether it's a small relative bet on his favorite name within the group. And, and to your point about the Wells Fargo holding, which was one of the others that he, he was at always that sort of 10% holding uh, in the company, we know in May, for about a 10-day period, there was a massive amount of volume of selling. And at the time, I was trying to do lots of reporting on it. It was uh, pretty clear that it needed to be one of the big holders of, uh, one of the big existing holders of the stock. We don't know who that was, uh, but uh, we, we won't know the answer until we get the 13 Fs. But of course, if you did sell significant amounts of of, of one of the bank holdings versus a small top-up uh, in Bank of America, then it would seem to be just a small relative bet on one name as opposed to a, an all-out bet on, on the U.S. banking sector. The Bank of America ahead, purchase is a, is a drop in his portfolio, but I mean, if you take a look at the ramp, it was between July 31st and August 4th, mm. uh, Berkshire Hathaway and its subsidiary mm. spent more than $300 million on Bank of America shares alone just within that five-day span. So it's an interesting... It's interesting to see what the pattern is in terms of how he got into these bank stocks. And in terms of the buybacks, that, I mean, that goes to the core of his investing. He's getting his portfolio at a deep discount. And if you think of his portfolio, the biggest holding being Apple, the, you know, one of the most valuable companies in the stock market right now, he's getting that at a severe discount. So that buyback is basically buying Apple shares along with a lot of others at a discount to uh, market prices. Yeah. And, and I was just going to make the point in the second quarter, a couple of the businesses performed very well um, relative to what was happening in the broader markets and relative to what was happening just with the economy. Um, Geico was a strong performer. It was it saw a profit of two point one billion dollars in the second quarter. And that was up from an underwriting profit of three hundred and ninety three million a year earlier. Now, a lot of that was because the premiums weren't getting paid out because people weren't driving. There weren't uh, as many accidents. Um, Geico has done what almost every one of these insurers has done in terms of giving discounts to people, but they are going to be taking a $2.5 billion write-down in premium reductions. It's going to be spread over the next four quarters. Not very much of that came in the second quarter because it's happening. They kind of tied it into, if you want to get the discount, it comes when you re-sign with them, when you renew um, your auto insurance with them. And so as a result, they'll be taking the write-off for that over a period of time. And then BNSF uh, was down 15% to $1.1 billion, but the number of shipments were down by 18%. They cut expenses by about 26% to offset some of the lower volume. And the risk analyst saying that it is one of the better run railroads right now, at least in terms of trying to deal with this pandemic. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Wilfred Frost and Melissa Lee for joining today. With two partners, it's more like ballroom dancing. Once you get to three, it becomes more of a rave. Here's our morning tricky. rave. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. 
Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd be so kind, leave us a rating or review on your platform of choice. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.